Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This is episode 127, recorded on October 22nd of 2020. Uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and I you know, sit down and talk for about an hour about photo geek stuff. And uh, if you're not familiar with the format, you're about to be. I don't do it alone, though. Um, I always have a co-host, a co-pilot, if you will, with me uh, to go through the geeky photo news stories of the week. And there's no one more qualified, I think, this week to have on. Uh, he is um, an unapologetic Vancouver Whitecaps fan. Uh, he has an unhealthy affection for box cameras. I welcome Jordan Drake to the conversation. I, two times in one month, Don. It must be camera re- release month. It is. And it's, well, I mean, I guess typically going towards Christmas time is, uh, is when we would get more of the, uh, of the camera releases. So those are some of the big stories uh, that we're going to talk about. And Adobe just updated their whole suite of stuff. We'll touch on one thing from that today, maybe more mm-hmm. next week. Um, but how you been? Uh, really good. Uh, busy, because we do have quite a bit going on. But uh, working on my new fitness regimen, which you uh, hinted at <laughs> in our recent uh, Ronin episode. Uh, so I am starting uh, an attempt to get back into pre-COVID shape again. And I'm using camera gimbals to help me on that process. Uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I've, I've put on a couple of pounds myself, uh, but you know, it's, uh, having a, a young child around really does keep you on your toes. I know you're kind of in the same boat as well. Yeah. Um, you now can, they're also- probably bleeding into the mic right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I can't hear it right now, but I will check it later. Yep. <laughs> uh, and if you hear stomping noises on the rec- uh, recording as well, that's probably from my end right above my head. Either or, to um, be honest. Yeah. Uh, hey, I, I've been doing some more stuff with uh, DP Review TV as well here on my end. I had another episode drop uh, between the last episode of Photo Geek Weekly and this one on the quality of light. Um, and uh, I think that was pretty well received, actually, uh, for a complex topic that I only had five minutes or so to spend on. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a nice tip of the iceberg kind of um, lesson to. Uh, oh, there I hear it now, Jordan. Yeah. I, yeah sorry about uh, that. <laughs> It's all good. Uh, you're not as bad as Chris. Um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, <laughs> I hear that all the time. <laughs> uh, if you want to go and check out the uh, the video, I'll have a link in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, I encourage you to uh, you know just give me those five minutes. If you're giving me this hour now, give me a little bit more and uh, and go and give some commentary and some feedback. It's always very well received, no matter what you have to say. Um, and, uh, Jordan, you were mentioning you, uh, you had your new, uh, gimbal video that was out and a ton of other stuff that you've been up to lately. Um, that kind of leads into the stories. So uh, story number one, I don't think you've had in your hands yet. Um, as per our previous conversation yeah. that may have changed in the interim, but Not yet. Uh, Nikon has announced the Z6 and Z7 Mark II for both. And uh, this is like hot on the heels of DP Review just publishing the reviews, I believe, for the, the uh, Z7. Um, is it Z7 or Z7? Is we it do. Specific? It's very funny. So initially they said worldwide we are calling these Z cameras. And the backlash to that, as you can imagine, uh, from the colonies was really something. So uh, <laughs> they have since reversed their stance on it. And we are permitted to call it the Z camera, which Chris and I have done since the beginning. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I mean, it's Nikon or Nikon, depending on which country you're in as well. And they yeah. seem to be pretty forgiving over that. Anyhow, that, that's semantics. Um, these new cameras, I thought were oddly 
I don't want to say rushed to market, but it seemed like the product life cycle from the first iteration to this new revision of these cameras was really fast. And I say revision because if you look at the specs, not a lot has changed. Yeah. Um, there's some improvements to the autofocus functionality, which, uh, yeah, you can see it all on paper, but it really needs to be tested to, to see how functionally improved it's become. Um, frames per second might have increased by one, you know, from nine to 10 here and there and a few other little things. The, the big um, uh, kind of head scratcher for me, though, is they just doubled up or doubled down, however you want to think of it, on the processors in these cameras. Um, what do you think the differences are? And do you think that this was needed at this point? Uh, wh what are your whole thoughts on, on these new cameras? Well, it's kind of funny because both Canon and Nikon launched their mirrorless lens, their mirrorless lineups in full frame at about the same time. Uh, and then they've both come through with follow-ups and the Canon felt like a huge night and day difference, like what they really should have started with. Um, you know, you can see a lot of R and D in that where at the Nikon really, they listened to the chief complaints when these cameras came out, the autofocus wasn't very good. It was single card slot only. Uh, the video was limited to 4k 30, even though we knew the sensor could do better. Uh, so they have addressed those chief complaints, but those were the complaints almost two years ago when those cameras first came out. Um, so they've doubled up the processors, which I think is really just a cost cutting measure. You know, instead of developing a new processor, no R and D required to just slap two of them in there. Um, well, you've got to redo the board and the software right. and that, but you don't have to design a new processor. Um, and that makes me wonder, and this is just pure speculation on my, on my point. Um, maybe the sales of the Z6 and Z7 were so poor that they had just a warehouse of processors sitting there that they needed to, to, to get into products and ship that to market. That's one possibility. I, mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't actually think that that's really what happened, but the, the R and D cost of putting in a new, um, uh, a new processor is expensive. And that's why Canon doesn't make dedicated one D series processors either. It usually puts two of whatever the current generation of processors are in those cameras to give it the extra juice it needs. Yeah, uh, I think as well, just looking at the body, I think you're onto something there because it uses the exact same battery grip. It's physically the same body, except for those dual card slots on that. Uh, but it is a nice upgrade. And the thing to remember too is if they had brought out these autofocus improvements out of nowhere, it would have been a huge step forward over the Z6 and Z7. Those cameras had major firmware upgrades for them. And that's where I think this dual processor is very interesting. You can almost treat it like a smartphone. You know, some of the new iPhones are super overpowered for what they're doing right now, but that just means you're getting more longevity, uh, exactly. you know, more capability for them to update. And Nikon has been very aggressive with firmware updates. So I'm hoping this is just giving them lots of room to continue to improve the autofocus, the video, uh, those kind of things. There's one other thing that almost no one's talking about, uh, which is if you're a video shooter, um, in stills, there's different ways that lenses will focus, you know, twist one direction for nearer or further. In video, there's a right way and a wrong way. And Nikons focus the wrong way. Uh, now, previously, they were mechanically coupled, so there was no way around that. Now, it's focused by wire. Uh, when they first brought out the Z series, we were like, can we please just flip the focus direction so someone who's shot video can actually use your cameras? And they have finally given you the option in the menu, probably took about five minutes of coding to flip that over. So now I can manually focus a Nikon lens and I am thrilled. 
Well, especially if you've got a follow focus rig or something set up on, on the camera, uh, they're designed to focus in one direction and one direction only. Well, I mean, yeah, you can do it backwards, but that's not the way you shouldn't change your workflow uh, right. because the hardware that you're using is doing it against the grain for the industry. Um, but in, uh, in that regard, is every Z series lens focused by a wire? Uh, with the exception of the Noct, that is actually a mechanically coupled focus ring. And it's the only manual focus only lens in the lineup. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. So I'm not going to be able to use a Noct. I'm very disappointed. Um, but I don't have a tripod big enough for it anyways. So I'll say yeah, I, yeah, I, I hear a bit of sarcasm in your voice there. <laughs> uh, although I, I really would like to see one and, and hold it and try it and, and actually just experiment with it. But it's not a lens that I would ever fundamentally want to use uh, in, in any meaningful way. Um, you know, I was looking at uh, Sigma also had uh, dropped some uh, lens patents uh, uh, today. And I think there was something like a 14 millimeter F2 lens that was much more exciting to me than any F0.95 lens, you know, something yeah. for astrophotography and, uh, and maybe some good interior shots. But so we have the Z6 and the Z7, uh, as you mentioned, dual card slots. Uh, the video, has the video improved dramatically on these? Or oh. I think it was just a little tiny bit or maybe nothing at all. Yeah, so they've brought in 4K60 now, uh, mm. which uh, with the Z7, there's a very minor crop. I believe it's a 1.1 crop. With the Z6, it's a one and a half times crop, which makes sense. There's so many cameras using that sensor, like the S1H that I use all the time. Uh, same thing if you go 4K60, sensor can't read out fast enough, it has to crop in. Uh, but it's nice that they're giving us those options because we knew that the camera was capable of it. So it was clearly uh, apparently a processing bottleneck because we slap in two processors and now we've got that ability. Uh, so it's cool to see that. And yes, it is very nice to have two card slots for redundancy. I don't... On 100% of my shoots, I don't use dual card slots, but if I'm on the road or I have an interview or something that I can't duplicate, I'm always shooting uh, to two cards redundantly. What I want to see is, uh, I know you can do it with stills. Will I be able to do it with video? So that remains to be seen as well once I get my hands on this. And again, you've got to have more throughput, and that means you need to have more processing overhead in order to achieve that. And it looks like we've got that now. Yeah. Um, uh, so long as, you know, th there's other limitations that, uh, the main processor is not the card controller. Sometimes they are. Sometimes it's a separate, uh, you know, sub entity on on the camera board itself. Um, so we'll see. But it it's uh, hey Nikon, thanks for stepping up, fixing your problems. But um, it doesn't really feel like you've done anything that people weren't complaining about here. Uh, so looking forward to seeing what could potentially be in um, the way that they're staggering these. Uh, it's likely, and there's rumors that there would be a Z9 camera uh, yep. coming in the works that might, you know, give us that uh, full new feature refresh that I think a lot of people are clamoring for. And it's not like everybody's going to buy a, a Z9 or uh, an R5 or whatever the flagship is from various companies. Um, but they look at the flagship and yep. they put those uh, toe to toe and they say, okay, which one of these Titans beats out the other Titan? And then I'm going to buy into whatever that brand is at a mm -hmm. lower level. Uh, and so so being able to, to hold that trophy, uh, I think is really valuable. So it's going to be interesting to see what Nikon brings to the table to that end. Um, now Fuji is, is taking a slightly different approach here. I mean, they're not in the full frame space at all. They're in the medium format space where um, they're not going to compete with phase one. It's an entirely different type of camera uh, that Fuji is doing with the GFX series. 
But with their crop sensor cameras, um, they're actually hitting a professional note with them mm -hmm. that I don't think many of the other people are at various points in the uh, in, on the ladder. And they've just debuted a mid-priced, uh, but really fully featured um, XS10 with six stops of in-body uh, stabilization, as is reported by uh, the website that uh, you are known to opine on, uh, DP Review. Um, and you've had your hands on this camera. Uh, and so I'll just g give a quick rundown of, uh, of some basic specs. Um, if you want just the body, it's a thousand bucks. Uh, if you want it in a kit with a lens, it's either 1400 or 1500, depending on what you want. Um, I obviously paid the extra hundred bucks for the better lens. Uh, it can, and th this was interesting to me too, about the, uh, the video recording. You can record in, uh, uh, in flat F-log, um, but you can only capture 8-bit 420 internally. You can externally get better, but it only gets up to 10-bit 422. I, I say only because so many cameras now, if you have an external option, it's almost a de facto, oh, well, it's got to do ProRes RAW through an Atomos Ninja V now, right? Yeah. Um, so I've that, that, that's all I really got before I need to hear from you and, and bounce some stuff back at you. Yeah, I mean, the big thing the specs don't show is the feel of the camera, because uh, Fujis don't tend to put grips on their cameras. They want them to look like a classic film body, which is a very flat front. A lot of people will add grips to them. This has a very big DSLR style grip on it, but still with kind of a retro design on the top of the camera. And it feels fantastic. And it is one of the few small cameras Chris and I have actually agreed on. Generally, if he loves the grip on a smaller body, I can't stand it and vice versa. <laughs> uh, this one felt great to both of us. The other interesting thing is Fuji is known for dedicated dials, a shutter speed dial, an ISO dial, an exposure comp, just like your classic film bodies again. Uh, this is designed much more like a DSLR. You've got three control dials on it, which are very customizable. Uh, so no matter how you want to shoot, you're going to have all of your commonly used controls right on a dial. Um, and it's a very big departure for Fuji, but I think it's going to win over a lot of people who have, you know, an old like um, 50D, 60D style Canon body or, you know, some thousand series Nikons or a Rebel or something. It feels very familiar, but it is so capable. Uh, it really is most of the stuff we loved from the X-T4 for, you know, I think those are going for about 17, 1800 right now. So, you know, a little over half the price, you're getting most of the functionality with a grip that's easier to hang on to. Uh, it's, it's pretty great for photographers. Most of the stuff they scaled back is actually just video stuff like you touched on there. Yeah. And, uh, I, okay. There's also, I, I don't know exactly what the X-T4 uh, has. I don't have the specs up in front of me. Um, this one has a 26 megapixel, uh, camera sensor more than capable, especially being an APS-C crop. Um, a three inch LCD on the back, nice and big with a, uh, only one, uh, 1 million dot, uh, screen there. And yeah. a, what was it a 3.69 million dot, uh, electronic viewfinder. It's a little I, less I actually. That. It's a, uh, two, three, six. That is one of the other big hits that you take there. Uh, oh yes, that's right. Uh, uh, compared to the 3.96 from the X-T4, uh, as I'm, yeah. as I'm reading the article and, and that, you know, I love having like a 5 million dot uh, EVF. It just looks so beautiful. Like I have on my S series bodies. Um, when I go back and try to use the EVF on my Lumix GX nine, I almost don't even really want to use it. It's just so low resolution at that point, um, that it just doesn't compare. <laughs> and yeah, this is a rolling target. It's going to, they're constantly going to get better as the flagships will get better ones and then it'll trickle down. Um, but I, I think that that is one of those usability things that to me might be a deal breaker, especially if, 
you're coming from a flapping mirror camera that has an optical, uh, you know, uh, view path uh, through the lens. And, and that it just w- would feel like you're giving something up maybe there. Um, but it's a compromise, right? I mean, you're yeah. getting in a, into a camera at $1,000 for the body. Um, you have to make some cuts somewhere, even though you can put, uh, you know, the same processors and sensors that are made from all of the other, uh, you know, higher end cameras into a smaller body. The cost cutting has to come from something. Yeah, it really reminds me of the S5 that you were talking about a few weeks ago, uh, where we're getting the same image quality as the higher end cameras. But yeah, the sacrifices on the viewfinder and the uh, LCD with that. But uh, yeah, the pictures are beautiful. It's a very fast scanning sensor and that stabilizer does work great. So for most people I know who are looking for that, you know, not a very basic starter camera for those people, I'd say use your smartphone. If you actually want to get into photography, I think this is one of the best packages out there right now. And, and just looking through, uh, you know, the, the overall specs, that six stop, uh, stops of image stabilization, I think is, uh, I mean, that, that's a combination with a stabilized lens, of course. But yeah. you see a lot of other people advertising between five and five and a half stops of uh, image stabilization performance. It's not a deal breaker to get an extra half a stop, but it can be useful, especially when that's a feature at that level I would have only expected to find on a flagship product. Yeah, it, it was only in Micro Four Thirds until this, basically, if you wanted yep. a really good stabilization unit. So there we go. We have the uh, XS10. If you were to give it a, you know, a, a, a rating, you know, like just your own, like not like by image quality and that yeah, have yeah. you, uh, but like on, on a scale of one to 10 for usability, functionality, is this a camera you'd recommend people to buy? Yeah, I, I think it's like a nine out of 10 for, especially photographers. There's so few compromises except for that viewfinder. Uh, but it's worth mentioning, most viewfinders like that Nikon, those Nikons we just talked about, run their viewfinders at 60 frames a second. This runs at 100. So that might okay. make up some of the gap for people used to flapping mirror cameras that might not like that electronic viewfinder lag. This is quite a seamless shooting experience with it. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that because I know that on some of the cameras I have or that I've used, you can uh, sort of overdrive the electronic viewfinder to increase its um, uh, its frame rate, but you take a battery hit by doing so, and it's yes. not on by default. Um, and so that's interesting that that's just the way it is. Is there any way to no. flip that off or change it? No, so it is off by default. That's what something okay. we've been, just to get the SEPA ratings up, it drives me crazy when people do this as the defaults, the camera's very scaled back. So as soon as you open up a Fuji, first thing you're going to want to do is crank that refresh rate up and take the battery life hit. But uh, yeah, that's the case with quite a few camera manufacturers and it's a real pet peeve of mine right now. Well, hey, it's all about the numbers game, right? You know, people buy a camera, especially right at announcement, based on what the specs are. And they'll compare it based on the battery life. And everybody's got to play the same game, unfortunately. Um, Well, let's go on to the next story. Adobe has done uh, an overreaching update to just about every app in their suite. I had the whole list of things from InDesign and Audition through Premiere and Photoshop and Lightroom. Everything's been updated. And there's some interesting features in there. But one that really stood out to me... um, Uh, Again, this is on DP Review. Uh, Adobe shows off a prototype version, and I don't think that this is out yet. So this is coming, and they're just teasing this. They do do this sneak thing uh, of features that you might be able to um, uh, use probably within the next update or point update. Uh, Content authenticity tool and an ecosystem surrounding it. And so... You know, we have, uh, especially with the, the latest update of Photoshop, it makes it so much easier to do like deep fake content. It's terrifying, yeah. It's terrifying. And, and we're like, 
how many days before the U.S. election right now? We don't need tools for the average person to spread misinformation. And you know it's going to be used for they, that. They could have held it off just three weeks, Adobe. Come on. <laughs> So, um, but they have now this tool that they did hold off for however long uh, to try and uh, try and provide authenticity to the content that you're seeing. And, and this is not a new thing. Uh, Canon and Nikon had um, had little uh, added kits that you could get that would uh, particularly encrypt your image data to tell if something had been edited. And they were summarily cracked, like I don't know, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just it's a cat and mouse game with this kind of stuff. And so whether uh, Adobe is coming up with some cryptographic technique, some uh, new interesting version of stenography, uh, embedding special stuff in the metadata, or a combination of all of those things, I'm sure you watched the video. It's about four minutes mm-hmm. long, and uh, you can check the link at uh, photogeekweekly.com to, to you know, watch for yourself. What did you think when you were watching that, Jordan? Well, I think, like you said, we've seen this before, but Adobe is a big enough name that I think they're really going and it's not a camera company so you know this will be universal to a lot of different files i think it's absolutely necessary at this point especially with some of the stuff that they've announced coming into photoshop where you're one click aging and de-aging people um what i found most interesting actually in the dp review article is that idea of how are we going to bully the different media outlets into actually working with this new software? Um, yeah, and it says specifically it's working with the New York Times company, Twitter, Microsoft, BBC, Qualcomm, interestingly enough, um, a True Pick, Witness, CBC, and many others. Hey, CBC gets a list there. So, um, uh, hooray, Canada. Uh, but that, that is not an exhaustive list of all no. of the major news outlets that spread misinformation. So, yeah, there's some big names there, and I'm glad that there are. But where's NBC? Where's Fox? You know? Yeah, yeah I think, I mean, the optimist in me is like, this is going to be such a great way to, at a glance, differentiate the respectable news outlets from, you know, if a news organization isn't willing to commit to this standard, then that's a really good indication that they're not, you know, totally on the up and up, but on the same token, yeah, not having Reuters and stuff like that, uh, the AP associated press. Yeah. yeah, uh, Like those were the two ones that really jumped out to me as missing in that list. Uh, So it's a very interesting concept right now, but I think it's really going to come down to uh, people are, and I hate to give people the benefit of the doubt here. They're going to have to educate themselves uh, to understand what this standard is and why they might want to pay more attention to news outlets that utilize it. Uh, and that is a big ask, I would say. If you look at, um, at uh, cryptography in the computer space, any company that rolls their own encryption is bound to fail, right? The best encryption um, that we have is open source, where the code can be audited and it can be confirmed that there are no bugs or if there is one, it gets fixed and gets fixed for everybody that's implementing that type of uh, encryption. And uh, that the math of that encryption is sound. It's perfect. It's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but as soon as you'd make something proprietary, then people start poking at it. And just like the Canon and Nikon image authenticity uh, tools of yore, uh, I worry that if Adobe makes this a proprietary Adobe product rather than giving it to everybody with a clearly completely documented API saying exactly what everything is, how it works, and making it rock solid and being confident enough to do that, then I might not give long-term confidence in this. And, And that goes to a second worry. 
where um, if you do get industry adoption of this and then it's hacked, then Adobe has egg on their face. Everybody's going to throw it back to Adobe. Uh, And then are they going to try it again? Or is it just going to disappear because it wasn't solid enough to begin with and now their reputation within this space is tarnished? Yeah, and it's interesting as well. Adobe has such a stranglehold on so many different types of media. Journalism is one where it's not as much. Photo mechanic is the industry standard um, in that world. Uh, so again, they have. It's going to take a little bit more momentum from them to actually break through to that audience. I mean, how many journalists are going to want a round trip from photo mechanic to Adobe to make sure that everything is sound end to end? It's a big ask. Uh, It is. Now, the Content Authenticity Initiative. Um, I have to put this in here because the logo for this, which you'll see when, again, you you bring up the article, is shockingly, disastrously similar to the Meyer Optic Gorlitz logo, uh, which is now owned by a German company called OPC Optics. And I don't know if you looked up the logo, uh, Jordan, to to see. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's like, that's a lawsuit right there. Um, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know exactly how close it requires to, you know, infringe on a brand, but they're both in the imaging space. And so there's, there's the overlap required to say, Hey, you're, you're getting too close to us because the Meyer optic logo is basically, um, three rectangles on top of each other. Well, they're trapezoids, but they're almost rectangles on top of each other offset so that there's one on the left and then down in the bottom corner, there's uh, uh, one on the right and then down on the left again or the other way around, whatever it happens to be. And the Adobe um, uh, uh, content authenticity initiative is almost exactly the same logo. Um, It's black boxes instead of white. uh, And it's one rectangle that's a little bit bigger than the other two, but it's the same thing. And it's just as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, what, what's Meyer Optic up to now? I immediately had brand confusion there. So uh, I th- good luck with that, Adobe. I think uh, that OPC acquisition was such a good move just for the lawsuit now that they can spring on <laughs> Adobe. It was worth picking up that lens line right there. Exactly. Well, I'm actually looking them up now. The uh, the Trio Plan 100 uh, F2.8 version 2 is available now. Now that I'm talking about the brand, they've got their Lidith Trio Plan 50, Primo Plan 75, and all of these lenses are coming out now back in their portfolio. But I will also uh, put a caveat to these lenses. I own it and and you used it yep. uh, in a shoot that you did here in, um, in February. Um, it's soft. It's intentionally that way. But uh, I also used a projector lens from like 1980s Soviet Ukraine. <laughs> and um, it gives me better soap bubble bokeh than the Trio Plan 100. And it cost me 15 bucks. So um, I'm actually writing about that in my upcoming book, uh, Macro Photography, The Universe at Our Feet. And a lot of people have been asking me, Don, what's the latest update on your book? Where is it? Well, ask my daughter's teacher, uh, who she is in online kindergarten uh, as a four-year-old, which has been consuming a little bit more time than I had anticipated. Um, and my wife and I are kind of uh, being teacher's assistants uh, to that. Tomorrow's a PA day. So um, I don't have to be sitting in front of the computer making sure that she presses the wrong thing or says the wrong thing. Um, so you're finishing so, it tomorrow is what you're saying. I, yeah, I'm working on it tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm finishing it, but I have I have a, uh, uh, a a requisition for time in to my wife. It's like, okay, tomorrow I'm closing the door to my office. You don't bother me at all. When I'm hungry, I will come out and seek food. Um, that that is the only time you might see me tomorrow, and uh, and we will play with that. So, <laughs> wish me luck, everybody. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Courage. 
All right. Um, the next story. This is actually really neat, and uh, it's got legs, I think. In its current implementation, I, I laugh at it. But um, Petapixel was reporting um, a fully functional 3D-printed Canon EF to RF tilt adapter. And a light bulb just went off in my head. Yeah, you've got that room. <laughs> you can shift a traditional uh, DSLR or SLR lens uh, with a mount adapter, because you know some of Canon's mount adapters, they've even put filter slots in them, which I think is genius. I love that idea. I wish it was available for every uh, camera platform. Um, but within that space, you also have the ability to tilt the lens, which will tilt your focal plane to give you the miniaturized effect with any lenses that you have that you're adapting. And you can 3D print it for like $3. Um, now, I wouldn't trust a 3D printed camera mount, uh, but how hard would it be to machine one of these things out of aluminum for some of the Chinese manufacturers like, you know, Photodiox or a KNF Concept or any of these people that make all of these adapters uh, fairly cheaply to make one for just about any camera mount passively um, that uh, just gives you a whole library of tilt lenses. You don't get the shift, right? Because you don't have a wider image circle, so you can't shift the lens around in that same way, but you can tilt it and get the whole diorama effect of the world around you. I've always wanted a tilt shift lens. I could never justify the cost of them. I can get one of these adapters and now I've, I'm in that ballpark. How do you feel? I, I love this. A long time ago, Lens Baby brought out a tilt adapter for Nikon F mount to Micro Four Thirds. And I thought it was such a cool idea. Like, yes, we'll see these for all the lens lineups. And when I saw this news, I went and checked on their website, and that adapter has been discontinued and never spoken of uh, for about, <laughs> looks like going on 10 years now. Uh, but yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And uh, I know that, um, I believe it was Photodiox, uh, showed us some prototypes of something along these lines. So it's been something in the back of my mind. Um, oh, also, uh, Hasselblad for their H series has brought out a, uh, tilt shift adapter for, um, their H mount lenses, but it's nothing that's really caught on in the mainstream with the modern mirrorless cameras that everybody actually owns and uses. Uh, so I'm really hoping that the excitement in this Petapixel article gets some of those more trustworthy adapter names like Photodiox to jump on and actually get yeah, these things to market. You look at the parts as they're manufactured. It comes in you know, basically five pieces uh, that you have to kind of put together. It looks pretty shaky. Yeah, uh, I, I would not mount. I think that they show a, a Canon 50 millimeter F 1.2 lens, which is <laughs> a heavy lens attached to this thing. Uh, that is not a safe maneuver. I don't think. Um, but uh, that being said, you can use uh, companies like um, i.materialize um, and uh, they, they can print in metal. They can 3D print stuff in uh, nickel or silver or whatever. You know, it could be luxurious. You can make it in gold if oh, you really wanted to. Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'll have a $7,000 passive adapter. Um, but the, the fact is that those companies, they do produce parts in metal and you can 3D print in metal. And uh, so if you wanted to yourself to pay a significantly higher price than uh, having some uh, something CNC'd, um, then uh, hey, it's out there. It's available. And this is a call out to any of those third-party manufacturers that make uh, lens mount A to camera B systems or extension tubes that are just passive to make this. People will love it. Um, or at least the R&D cost is almost minimal. In fact, you've got the model right here. It's done for you. 
just machine this thing and give me something a little bit more solid and I'd be happy. And while you're at it, please, somebody just make some L mount extension tubes. <laughs> Finally, some just, I don't care who I'll just, I'll throw my money at you. Just let me buy some L mount extension tubes. Thank you very much. I will throw in there as well. Active L mount extension tubes, please. And, yes, uh, exactly. Canon and uh, yeah, standard L mount preferably. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, uh, th- that being said, uh, Novoflex does have a an active, uh, you know, electronically controlled L-mount uh, bellows system, mm. but it's ridiculously expensive. And uh, I'm sure it's fantastic. Everything that I've ever used from Novoflex uh, is phenomenal, including their automated focusing rail, their Castel Micro, which yeah. I have in my studio right now. I, I don't go to anything else but that thing now. Uh, it's rock solid, but you get what you pay for. Um, so I, I'd rather have some cheaper alternatives, uh, to recommend for people in terms of extension tubes and what have you. All right, let's go into another story. That's, I, I think it's kind of a follow-up, uh, on one that we did a few weeks ago, or was it last week about, uh, Canon's new purchase of a supercomputer. And my thought process there was if you can lower the cost and speed up the time of rapid prototyping a product, um, using all sorts of computer simulations for, for heat and, uh, and ease of use modeling and, and whatever else, um, then uh, you might be able to make products that fit into niche markets cheaper. Um, oh, and we have that. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think every year uh, at CES in the past, Canon would show a whole bunch of really weird prototype stuff that kind of is, is halfway done, never really fully gets finalized. One of them, I think, was it about, uh, was it 20... 2013 or 2014 they showed a stereoscopic 3d camera and you know that's up in my wheelhouse i was so excited for that to come out and it didn't exist um beyond that trade show still i'm sure it's in a warehouse somewhere and i i might break in and steal it but um the the idea with this here is it's a hands-on with the canon power shot zoom that's the the whole name um i i i have to give it to them they didn't add a string of letters and numbers that are incoherent uh, on the end of the uh, the product name. I think it's the first time I've seen that in a very long time uh, with camera equipment. Um, does it live up to that praise, Jordan? Well, uh, first of all, I think some people relate Zoom to actually moving through focal lengths, uh, which this cannot do. It is one of two <laughs> focal lengths. So that might be the one word they chose to use to describe it might confuse a few people. Um, but uh, if you get a chance on DP Review, um, Barney Britton wrote a very sassy hands-on about this, uh, which I loved. I uh, love the sass. You have yeah. to read it for the sass. Yeah, he's the best at the sassy writing on the site. Um, well, actually, no, that might not be true anymore because Roger Sakala is now oh, yes. part of the staff at DP Review, and uh, I love his writing. Too. News Story Six. That's going to be. That's going to be a major one. Uh, it's great to see him come <laughs> on board. Um, but yeah, the power shot zoom, it is, I totally understand Canon's thinking with this because the one thing your smartphone still can't do, you know, it can interpolate images to get you, you know, close to like an 85 mil equivalent or something like that. It's not going to get you a 400 millimeter equivalent optically, uh, which is what this is doing. It is a super tiny sensor. There are no manual controls on it. It is a as point and shoot as you can possibly get with a 100 millimeter equivalent or 400 mil equivalent. And the image quality isn't great, but if you need telephoto and you don't care about picture quality, like birders are going to 
eat this stuff up. Or if you're doing outdoor, taking a picture of your kids and you've been using your cell phone and cropping it down to a quarter of a megapixel, then this will make a lot of sense for those people. But uh, the birder, the birder market, I think that's really yeah. what this is going to be huge for because this is like a uh, binocular. Um, well, it's monocular, obviously, but um, make a stereo version of it uh, that uh, that will record what you're seeing. And uh, so it takes micro SD cards, uh, you know, smaller format, but you don't really need to be shooting rapid fire or filling up huge amounts of space with a device like this. So it makes sense to use the smaller card format. Um, uh, did, I, I bought into Canon did a, a marketing campaign uh, was it last year, or the year before or 10 years ago, it's all time has. A sense it was, it was from right the now. before times. Yeah. But from the before times, uh, Canon had introduced, it's just out of reach here. I can't quite get it. Uh, the IV rec, yeah. which was like a clip on camera and, um, it has no screen. It, it's controlled by Bluetooth and they did an, uh, Indiegogo campaign to fund it, but you didn't get to see what their funding numbers were. It was just a marketing way to launch a product. And that was, I think, the first time that I saw a large manufacturer uh, take one of these concept products and push it out to the masses. And I bought it, not because I wanted it, but because I wanted to see what the process was for them to actually bring one of these things to market. And I turned it on and I synced it and I, I might have taken a sample photo or two. Um, it's one of those cameras that I have in my collection that I'm waiting to see how I can destroy. Like do something super risky with this camera, like like throw it into an explosion and hope the recording survives uh, at the end of it. Uh, just so that I have something that I'm, the camera is immaterial to that. It's just the, the, the risk that I need to take to get something interesting. Um, so that was in the before times. Uh, and now I don't think that they're doing the same kind of thing with this. They're just kind of putting it out into the market yep. and uh, letting the masses decide. Um, I, I honestly, I want more of, of these prototype cameras. I, mm-hmm. I, I want more of these very strange niche products. In fact, I have something that just arrived in the mail today. Um, this here, uh, it comes with a case that I didn't order, but they made it complimentary to it. It's a tablet. It's a tablet called the loom pad. And I haven't even opened this up yet. This box is still sealed for only Jordan's eyes to see that the wrap is still on it. Sorry, Um, everyone at home. Yes, this is, um, this is from the same company that made the screen for the red hydrogen, Hmm. because if you love that phone and I'm the only one, um, (laughs) And you wanted a bigger version of it, then you can now purchase that. And so I have. Uh, but uh, honestly, to, to do a, a 3D uh, stereoscopic effect on a, uh, a small screen, the impact isn't nearly as powerful as if it was on a larger device. And I've seen that with a lot of different things. And it's generation two of that technology. So um, I will be uh, unboxing and testing this camera or th- this. Uh, well, it's got cameras on it, too. But this uh, device, uh, Android based tablet over the next week or so uh, in whatever free time I can find. Uh, and I'll report back here on Photo Geek Weekly whether or not that it is a, a viable thing to buy into. But the fact that it could even come to market, regardless of how many they sell, um, shows me that the cost of manufacturing niche products is going down. And that mm-hmm. only gets 
you know, more interesting for us as consumers because stuff that's just a, you know, a, a dream of some engineer that would never be able to find the funding or the backing to do it in traditional times 10 years ago. Well, things are getting easier, faster and cheaper to manufacture uh, in terms of how fast you can prototype and bring something to market using off the shelf parts in terms of processors and memory and all of that um, from other manufacturers, especially if you're using stuff from one generation prior to whatever their flagships are, those costs go down considerably so that you can experiment and have some fun. You know, Don, I feel like that would make an excellent episode of DP Review TV were you to put in the time for that. <laughs> Maybe. I, uh, I'll, I'll run that uh, past the powers that be to see if that's uh, something viable. Uh, it'll definitely be content that nobody else has, that's for sure. I do not feel uh, qualified to make that review, so this is on you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll see what comes of that, but... Uh, Hey, talking about um, you know all of these stories and and uh, what the DP review stuff is coming. Do, do you want to? Can you give us a teaser about what your next video might be? Yeah, it's shootout time. So this is the fall is when we'll start doing all of the camera comparisons of different ones in their class. So coming out uh, this week, we've got the Canon RP against the Nikon Z5, uh, two great entry level full frame cameras. Then we're going to get into the high res cameras. So your S1R, your Z7 Mark II. When I get that and i'm hoping to have the new firmware for the s1r as well against the canon r5 and the i'm forgetting one uh the other one the other one the sony a7r4 thank you okay i was gonna say (laughs) are are you throwing fuji into the mix no so this is just full frame for these but uh yeah that one's coming up very shortly as well and those are always very popular very contentious episodes uh and yeah we're also rolling into it's coming quicker than you'd think the uh, holiday season so chris and i are also prepping our best and worst episode right now so we can have that ready december 1st this year when people still care about the best and worst of the year not on (laughs) december 27th when no one cares anymore like previous years so, well, uh, it was funny because I was reading the comments on uh, my uh, recent videos and somebody said, um, Alex said, I hope this guy drunkenly reviews bulbs at the end of the year. Perfect. I, I don't know if that's going to be in the cards. Just Alex. in a home hardware with a flask. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful. Um, I I, I kind of, now that you describe it that way, I, I have to make it happen somehow. Uh, maybe not this year, but. <laughs> <laughs> sir, we'll sir, see. you have to leave the lighting aisle, sir, sir. <laughs> oh, oh, joy. You heard okay. it here first. Yeah, this is the origin of an idea. And wh- where can you find the executions of said ideas? Uh, your ideas with uh, Chris Nichols and yourself, Jordan Drake, uh, DP Review TV, obviously. Yep. Uh, and that's on YouTube and from DP Review, all the stuff is linked there. Um, but your musings and your fashion choices, uh, where can we observe those? Well, you'll want to go to Twitter. Uh, I'm at that Jordan Drake to hear the full story of the white caps uh, shirt that Don was referring to earlier there. I uh, do go into a little detail on that. And then you'll also want to check out Instagram. Uh, I'm working at getting a lot more behind the scenes stuff while we're out shooting on there. And I am determined every sample gallery we put out, I will have a few pictures in it. So I am taking photography and I am going to put that on my Instagram as well. Awesome. Uh, Jordan's a huge fan of that sports ball stuff. So uh, look forward to seeing more about that. (laughs) All right. Well, let's let's get into our picks of the week. And and I was uh, I was complaining to Jordan before we started recording that um, 
when I'm doing some of the episodes that I've been up to lately, you know, one every two weeks, it might take me a day uh, to do the A roll and B roll stuff just kind of comes as it comes. But uh, recording myself uh, is a challenge being both in front of and behind the camera. Uh, and I've done some takes where the autofocus just didn't hit for whatever reason and I was perfect and I was out of focus and it's like well c- can I like put myself back in focus and lip sync to what I said before because that I can't redo it yeah. um, but uh, you said that you teased me that your pick of the week will help me with the kind of stuff that I am doing for that channel so what the heck is it and uh, and how much will it cost me? Okay, so I just put out our video for the new Ronin RS2 and RSC2 from DJI, the best known for drone stuff. Uh, but they've had a very well-regarded line of gimbals for uh, quite a few years now, uh, about six years. So the latest versions came in, and usually when new gimbals come through, we haven't seen major advancements in them for a while. They tend to just be different form factors or they'll take a little bit more weight. This is the first time since the Ronin S that I've been like, oh man, I guess I'm going to have to actually go pick some of these up because it will change the way that I shoot a little bit. Uh, it's a better gimbal. Uh, it does something really interesting where you set up a user profile and it'll remember how you move. So some people will lean more one direction using a camera. They'll step a little heavier on this foot or that. And even using it over a week, uh, just chasing my kid around, I could see the stabilization improving. Um, now that might be because I was getting more used to the technique, but they've given us the explanation that there might be more to it than that going on under the hood. And because you can set up different profiles, you got a different op coming in, the camera can start to learn them as well. So it's a very cool improvement just on the basic um, stabilization. But why I think Dawn needs this is... They've got uh, a new thing called the Raven Eye Transmitter, and it sounds like it's just a regular HDMI transmitter, kicks out the feed to a smartphone or a tablet, very little lag, which is awesome, uh, gives you a few assist tools, but now what it'll do is it will use the video feed coming off the camera lens. Uh, there have been previous versions where you put the smartphone on top and then it tries to follow the subject, but it can't tell what focal length you're using. Now it sees the image and it will tell the gimbal, hey, follow that person. You tap on them and then you can just set the camera up on a gimbal in the middle of the room on a tripod or have someone else holding it and it'll follow you as you move around, um, which is a very cool thing initially. But then what about focus? Say you have a camera that doesn't have great autofocus on it or you can't walk over and tap it. I haven't tested it yet, but I'm hearing really good things. They've got a LiDAR attachment for this that will work with manual focus lenses. Uh, so it will actually detect the distance. You do have to go in and say like, hey, here's where the distance scales are on this manual focus lens. But then you're getting continuous autofocus with the camera following you around without having a camera operator. Uh, it means that my career is now very short-lived, and I'm going to have to get much better at presenting on camera because... Uh, Chris is going to have a lot less use for a camera operator, but it's incredibly cool technology. And I've seen versions of this, but it's all been very unintuitive, quite flaky. And there are still some issues with the uh, the app. Occasionally, you've got to tap on your subject like four or five times for it to realize it's a subject for you to follow. But once it's locked on, the tracking works great. And the samples I'm seeing of the LiDAR are really compelling. So I think I'm going to have one of these. And I think you should get one out there and buried on. I, I think I'm going to be watching this with eagle eyes uh, and try to get one of Raven as eyes. Yeah, Raven. <laughs> well, yes, sure. Raven eyes. Uh, but um, the, the whole LiDAR idea of, uh, you know, the, the iPhone uh, 12 Pro and Pro Max has LiDAR built in. 
I think that in terms of understanding what your subject is, where it is, the depth of your subject, that information is is useful, not just in the advanced uh, you know, computational processing that the iPhone is going to be doing, but we were talking about it in the last episode about uh, how it can really be a powerful focusing aid mm-hmm. um, if you can understand what the subject is as a LiDAR outline. And, um, and, and that, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of it. I think we're going to see it everywhere. Uh, I think we, I don't know if we're going to see it built into cameras specifically, um, but it would be really interesting to see if a manufacturer made like an add-on LiDAR accessory to a, a standard camera as just like, okay, you want uh, focusing on steroids uh, in pitch black? Uh, here you go. You can, you can focus on bats flying around in the middle of the night when your flash isn't firing and then fire the flash when, when it happens. Or uh, That's a very silly example. People have already found ways to do that. But um, the, the idea is that uh, you're out of work. And thank you for informing us of, of your uh, impending unemployment. I look forward to being your frequent paid co-host on this podcast, Don. <laughs> hey, you don't get paid, but neither do I. Right. Uh, so <laughs> that uh, that brings me to my my pick, which is something just really a, a creative um, uh, ingredient, let's say. And uh, I was I've known about this technique for a while, and I just started exploring it recently. Uh, just we had the fall colors uh, and all the red maple leaves in our area. And I thought, you know, let me try to recreate one of my uh, most popular images, my maple leaf flag photograph. But let's not do that in the same way I did before. Why would you? Let's try to take this. The original was, if you're not familiar, um, uh, red leaves uh, preserved by ironing them between wax paper so that they would survive until the winter months and then laid out on a bed of freshly fallen snow. It's my most stolen photograph of all time. Uh, but it's also the point that I say, well, I started my professional career when I took that image. It was a lot of pre-visualization and, and planning to create the photo. So I figured, well, let's try to do something different, but uh, an homage to that um, by freezing uh, red maple leaves in water. And uh, I'd seen some techniques where people were freezing flowers and leaves and all sorts of organic things within uh, water and the bubbles that would emerge from uh, from whatever the object was, uh, was fascinating. And, and the curves, and I really have to explore this as a macro photography subject in the coming year or so, because all it requires is just, you know, uh, water in a freezer, but a specific type of water. And that's mm-hmm. my pick uh, is distilled water. Because you have to have it at least at some level of purity. Uh, reverse osmosis water would probably be even better, but I can't just go out to the corner store and buy that. So distilled water is what I'm suggesting. We can get like four liters of it for three or four dollars here. It's not an expensive thing. All you have to do is take a flower. It could be a dandelion, a weed, whatever it happens to be. Uh, stick it in a soup bowl. Uh, fill it up with distilled water and stick it in your freezer and then enjoy the results. And now you have a new photographic subject that you might be able to keep your sanity with uh, through the pandemic. And in fact, what I'll do is I'll put that photo. It's very I, I think cool. I might, uh, do a, a couple of uh, tweaks to it. I think I sent it to you, Jordan. Yep. Um, uh, I, uh, I'll put that photo in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. So you can check that out. That was a fun little experiment. And uh, it's always good to just, pick up the camera once in a while. You know, I, oftentimes right now for me, uh, I, I mean, 
you pick up your camera for work all the time and, and so do I, but, um, for me, my work is, you know, recording some videos or, uh, you know, <laughs> completing my book. Uh, and so shooting new content right now is not really something unless there is a time sensitivity to it. And there was with the fall color. So I was so happy to be able to pick up the camera, make something magical, uh, you know, to, to, to my sensibilities of, you know, that mesh of art and science, uh, being woven together to, uh, to, to make something nice. And, um, and you that's did. keeping me inspired. I did. Oh, I hope I did. I don't know. Yeah, I'll, cool. I'll, I'll let the crowds decide. Uh, again, check out the show notes. Give us some feedback. And Jordan, thank you very much for being on this episode. Again, um, we can find you at DP Review TV at at, the, uh, that, at that Jordan Drake on Twitter and Instagram. Is it the same on Instagram? Same. All right. There we go. Thank you, Jordan. And thank you to everybody for listening. Thanks, uh, it is time now, uh, after this, oh, it's only been 51 minutes. Oh, we breezed through this. That's all right. Uh, even faster now, it's time to stay in and shoot.